Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane's Patreon channel, where I get to hang out with friends and talk about nerdy stuff. I'm so happy to have my friend Phil Ewing here with me. Hi Phil, how are you? Hey, good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm so happy to have you back. I uh, I think you are a delightful human and a really fun guest, and you're really <laughs> insightful and smart and funny. So it's it's always fun to hang out. You're too you. kind. I I don't think any of those things are true, but they're it's, that's nice of you to say. Uh, so for people who may be uh, unfamiliar with you, Phil, I know you've been on the main show a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a longtime comics fan and amateur comics creator, amateur as in never published. Um, but we make an extensive amount of comics art in my house. In fact, my daughter and I just made a one page comic book about the Enchantress falling in love with the Incredible Hulk which I really enjoyed. <laughs> I did the line art and the inking and she colored it in with her colored pencils. And um, in my previous life, I was a public radio national security journalist. So people may have heard me on the NPR politics podcast before this, but my most recent career has been a regular on the Gray Muck and Lane podcast. I am so happy that that is on your resume. That makes me happy. We uh we just hit, uh, I'm releasing next Monday, the X-Men 66 episode. So I'm finishing up volume one of the X-Men and we are now moving into like the 1970s early content uh, pre-giant size. I've got a whole, I've got a whole several months. I, uh, I was, I was baffled this morning. I had a really prominent writer reach out to me this morning asking if they could come on the show, which is always, I mean, I reach out to people, but to have them reach out to me is always such an honor. And my next opening, I'm like, uh, July 10, which is insane because I'm so uh, booked out and because the show's increasing in uh, a little bit of popularity, which is a wonderful thing. What uh, are you going to do when the a comic book gets canceled? Because eventually you're going to you're going to hit a point where there's no more X-Men in this era. We just hit it. That was the that's what X-Men 66 is. It's the final oh, one in the first volume. So now we're going to do all this stuff in between. Uh, like uh, Beast Turning Blue in Amazing Adventures. That's an eight issue run. Uh, Magneto and the Fantastic Four. We got X-Men and the Hidden Years. There's all kinds of stuff coming up on the show that we're going to hit that people may be less familiar with because it's not often reprinted. Uh, we're getting ready to do a three-issue arc of Angel written by Superman creator Jerry Siegel, which like nobody's familiar with. It's uh, <laughs> there's, some, there's some really cool stuff from that 1970 era that's, uh, that's going to be amazing. I um, love Warren Worthington in that time. And one thing that I lament about what Marvel did and has done with that character since then is that the kind of rich playboy uh tony stark but not tony stark character that warren worthington was was incredible fun and uh during periods when the x-men themselves uh were no longer a team he continued to appear and he would do other things in a way that was always incredibly entertaining yeah right up until champions and then x-factor right x-factor is where it all changed because then you get the yes. Angel stuff and, uh, correct yeah he's he's an interesting character now a lot of characters like warren worthington have gotten the trial format on my show where we get to really delve into their history talk about their psychology my initial plans for this patreon was to take the characters that wouldn't qualify for a trial but still have a wild history that we won't ever get to explore on the show unless we do it in this format so we've done Brad Duncan and the Changeling and Grotesque and all these other characters. Uh, my initial goal was to hit the 60s characters. And a lot of my, uh, now that I'm having more professionals on this Patreon show, they're choosing characters from more modern eras. I'm getting ready to do the Demon Bear with Sam Humphreys as an example coming up, which is wonderful. <laughs> uh, but I still, I'm still inviting my friends to come on and do these 60s guys. I've got this list I want to target. And Phil was so gracious uh, to come and do the Cobalt Man with me. Had you ever heard of this character prior to me sending this email out to you? Never. Completely cold, uh, which is one reason why I'm so excited to talk about with you, uh, him with you and, and to do the show for the Patreon audience because um, when you spend enough time, as I know you have, with these characters and this content, you start to live inside it in a way that makes everything very familiar. You know characters' backstories. You know which characters like each other characters. You know which other characters don't like other characters. But to have something completely cold and new in the way that Cobalt Man was for me um, was a really fun challenge, especially because he comes from one of my favorite eras in the history of comic books, these classic uh, Roy Thomas, Stan, um, early days of the Marvel Universe. And so I really enjoyed looking back at those books and then seeing him to the degree that he progresses over time, progress over time 
through Marvel into the 70s and, and then beyond? I uh, often when I finish these episodes, I feel like I know these characters and their psychology and their motivations. And then I want to go write about them. And I already liked the Cobalt Man. He's he's complicated, but I already like him and I already would like to write this character. Marvel has this giant sandbox full of toys. And at least for uh, at least for many years, it's changed sometimes. The idea was if you're writing the Hulk every month, for example, you got to have the Hulk constantly facing new villains and new threats. And you can create something new, but it's fun to dust off the puppet master or the cobalt man and, and pull them out of the toy box. And then you have to tell the story, like figure out where they were left off, leave them in a new place for someone else to pick up. And the cobalt man has a, a fair bit of that where he's the guy that gets picked up and dusted off once in a while. And then at a certain point, he becomes something else. <laughs> we'll get there in a minute, but he's a, he's an interesting character. One of the reasons I thought you might be uniquely equipped for this, although not directly correlated, uh, the Cobalt Man seems to be a character that really delves out of like Cold War America and like the fear of the atom bomb. And the Cobalt Bomb is uh, is a device that theoretically actually exists that has very dangerous potential for nuclear fallout, cobalt being one of the elements and also being the color blue, which is why this character is basically a blue Iron Man. He's got a nuclear reactor in his chest <laughs> and he is very easily driven mad by it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the inception of this character, created in 1967 as kind of a reaction to the fear of cobalt and, and bombs itself? Yes, these Marvel characters are a wonderful paradox because on the one hand, Stan and the uh, gang in the bullpen are creating kind of from whole cloth this material that has become this mythology for Americans. These characters that are as real to us as real humans or realer in a lot of cases whom we've seen over and over again in comic books and on TV and in the movies. And on the other hand, he is the most derivative bit of hack work in the history of comic books because he's basically Tony Stark. They hit copy paste on Tony Stark, but let's have him be a bad guy. And instead of him being Iron Man, let's have him be Cobalt Man. And as part of my extensive research for this episode, I want to read you a, a passage just real quickly from a book called The Elements by Theodore Gray, which is a fantastic nonfiction book about all the elements in the periodic table written for let's say humanities majors or journalism majors, which I was. So there's and, a lot of there's a lot of science and chemistry in this book, but there's a lot of passages like this one. And, uh, and by the way, I've interviewed Roy Thomas and asked him about Cobalt Man. And he basically said, Cobalt sounded scary. I didn't know the artist would make him a blue Iron Man, which is you're right on with what you're saying. <laughs> so he's not only, uh, as my wife pointed out to me when we were talking about Cobalt Man, he's not only derivative in every way of Tony Stark and Iron Man, Cobalt is literally right next to iron on the periodic table. So if you were looking at the periodic table and you were a Marvel hack writer and you had a deadline, you could throw a dart and say, well, maybe it's molybdenum or maybe it's uh, neptunium. No, it's going to be cobalt. And that's right next to iron. So there's some, the kids can enjoy that. Although so now I want molybdenum, man. <laughs> well, I, I would love to write that comic book too. Marva, Mar if you're listening to this episode and you uh, want to give me a contract for that run, I would be happy to do it. This is Theodore Gray on cobalt in his book, The Elements. Uh, I'm not sure how common this sentiment is, but for years, cobalt was an element that made me feel nervous, he writes. Its main association in my mind, and doubtless in that of others, was with nuclear fallout. But that's just a particular isotope, cobalt-60. Although this isotope is indeed highly radioactive and was a deadly component of the fallout from atmospheric nuclear bomb tests in the 1950s, ordinary cobalt is not radioactive at all. So there you are, folks. Normal cobalt. Don't go to your cobalt dealer and complain about the uh, exploits of Cobalt Man in the comic books, because the normal garden variety cobalt you get will be fine. If we were living, if we were living through the '60s in the way that these creators did, that Stan did, Roy Thomas, the artists, and others, let me just check who the artist, the penciler was for this issue. Werner Roth on his initial appearance. Werner Roth, uh, who was drawing the X Men at this time, Cobalt and Cobalt Man would not have seemed as ridiculous. Maybe about twenty percent less ridiculous than they seem to us today, because there were all kinds of discussions in the '60s about. What kind of crazy elements can I put in a nuclear device and give it devastating effects of a different kind? And uh, later on, there was a big fear about um, 
the neutron bomb, which would uh, yeah. irradiate, you know, entire cities or big army divisions and theoretically kill all the people, but leave all the uh, components intact, the tanks or the buildings or the factories or whatever. And so this idea of different flavors of nuclear weapons was very current at the time. And this was an era when the United States and the Soviet Union had tens of thousands of high yield nuclear weapons pointed at each other. And this technology also was not really under control. The United States was doing atomic tests in the 60s in which it would think, hey, we'll get a megaton and a half out of this Castle Bravo shot and everything will be fine. And then they would touch off the bomb and it would turn out to be a 15 megaton yield. In yeah. other words, 15 million tons of TNT, it would destroy everything, leave this huge crater. And there was this sense at the time of the X-Men, which is what made them so great, that that man had unleashed forces that he could not control. Maybe we'll talk more about that vis-a-vis uh, -vis Cobalt Man later on in this episode. And so he looks ridiculous to us. He looks derivative to us. I think at the time, comic book readers at this time would have seen this maybe a little bit uh, fun in the way that the X-Men were always fun, but there would have been a seriousness about it to them that was much more immediate than we see it from our perspective today. Well, and the nuclear arms race went on into the 80s and probably is something that still exists in our consciousness now, but this fear of nuclear detonation. And the United States had dropped the atom bomb a, a couple of times already at this point. Uh, in my research, and this is real, 1950, there's a physicist named Leo Sillard, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, S-Z-I-L-A-R-D, who discussed the idea of a cobalt bomb on the radio. He said he had no intention of designing it, but he wanted to theorize like how he was, he was trying to prove that nuclear weapon technology was getting to a scary place. And that kind of latched on to the public consciousness, it seems a little bit, that people started getting afraid of it a little bit. And the government, of course, started experimenting. And in time, it was learned that packing cobalt metal around a thermonuclear bomb could result in a particular type of devastation, but it was never really widely explored like nuclear fission or atom bombs or hydrogen bombs were. And we can see bombs constantly present in Marvel's history. In 1962, there is a story, uh, uh, it, it's a Thor story. There's a guy called the Doomsday Man who's threatening to detonate a cobalt bomb. And there's cobalt bombs that are used uh, throughout uh, Marvel's history a couple of times as potential threats that are not at all connected to Cobalt Man. Cobalt Man is connected to cobalt radiation and the element cobalt, which is very unstable and drives this guy mad a couple of times. Uh, and it's a very scary thing for him. But we also see the gamma bomb with Hulk, right? Like that's that's one of Marvel's biggest characters right from the beginning. And it's the same type of era. If we go X-Men, we can go back into Beast's origins and how his dad was in that like nuclear uh, facility, like trying to stabilize the rods. And they predict that's why Beast was born with big feet, right? Like there's, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that's threaded through early Marvel comics that comes through the Cold War stuff. Which leads us and to it's very mixed. Man. <laughs> yeah, it's very mixed. These these characters often are are uh, are well known. You know, one of the tropes about Marvel in this time through the seventies is when the Hulk turns back into Bruce Banner, uh, people recognize him. They say, "I know you. You're Bruce Ban Bruce Banner, the famous gamma ray scientist." And the role of scientists and physicists in popular culture in that time would have made it plausible for people to say, yeah, of course, I see these guys on TV, or as you were discussing, I hear them on the radio talking about nuclear science in a way that, fortunately or unfortunately, in our time, uh, science has taken a little bit of a backseat in our popular culture. The good news is we also don't worry as much about nuclear devastation as they did. Um, which isn't to say that it's not a serious threat still, but um, it's receded in the the number of things that we are concerned about in our own time. It's uh, it's crazy, and we could we could give a long list of characters, both Marvel and otherwise, who get their powers through some sort of nuclear accident. Sandman is on a beach when uh, when some nuclear stuff hits, and now he can control sand, right? Or the the Ninja Turtles get hit by the ooze. <laughs> now they're mutated into ninjas. Uh, there's a there's Daredevil a becomes yeah Daredevil becomes Daredevil because uh, he uh, gets hit by the radioactive hit by a canister of radioactive material. Whatever whatever it is, it's that kind of radioactive material that gives you incredible powers while taking away your eyesight. <laughs> So we could go on long, we could go on, on a long tangent there, but this is an era of X-Men. We're going to start with X-Men number 31. Uh, Roy Thomas has been on the book for a little while. The X-Men aren't doing great uh, sales-wise. They're kind of Marvel's lesser selling team book, and they're trying kind of a whole bunch of stuff. And this is, this is what we've been through on my show for a couple of years, going through these issues one at a time. 
the uh, early evil mutant stuff, Juggernaut the Sentinels, has now been replaced by the X-Men just fighting whatever random threat they come up with that particular month, from the Locust to Cobalt Man. Uh, Jean Grey has been put off into uh, Metro College. Uh, she's left the team, and she's dating a guy named Ted Roberts, who's super cute. He is the brother of uh, Cobalt Man. So when we first meet this character, he's created by Roy Thomas and Werner Roth. Uh, and uh, he is blue Iron Man, basically. He's like a gray-blue color. He's got kind of inhuman-looking holes in his mask and a power reactor on his chest. And on the cover of this issue, he's firing off what looks like to be a repulsor ray through Iceman's shield. He's punching Cyclops with his other hand. And uh, the tagline says, we must destroy the Cobalt Man. And of course, we have reviewed this on my show. Uh, tell me your thoughts on the design of this character, Phil. I really like Cobalt Man. Um, I like the way they chose to make him this Iron Man who is bad. And it, it comes through very clearly with the choice of color and design that there's something familiar to Marvel readers about him, but also ominous. And uh, I think it has to do entirely with his color story. Iron Man at this time is kind of this friendly golden and red uh kind of Washington commander's football uniform. Cobalt Man is completely blue and he also has a much more ominous kind of look. And, um, you know, it's funny because part of his message on the subject of how this would have read to audiences in the 60s as compared with the way we see it today, where it's kind of ridiculous and kind of camp was he raises the prospect or raises the issue that uh, the government is concerned that Iron Man is too powerful and Tony Stark is too powerful and that no one person should have, in this case, access to the arc reactors and armor suits that make um, Tony Stark and Iron Man. And Cobalt Man says, I'm going to do the right thing and take my Cobalt Man technology and turn it over to the government. And uh, they'll have uh, the responsible choice to use this technology that I've invented and use this cobalt, um, you know, responsibly. That's not how things turn out. But there is a school of thought that says, you know, on the subject of was man meddling with things too powerful for himself? And did the atom, you know, turn out to be the sort of Damocles over the head of humanity? Sure. And there was there was a school of thought that, yes, it was. And uh, there's a school of thought that here's a classic Marvel character who has heroic intentions. And even if his intentions are heroic, that doesn't necessarily mean that his follow through will be when the uh, when it comes down to it. Well, and one of the one of the four most common types of Iron Man stories is Iron Man versus the ideal of the weapons that he's created. Right. How that technology gets used. They love to create a villain that's like a slightly darker version of Iron Man, like the Titanium Man and the Crimson Dynamo. And what is it like when it's in the hands of other people? Uh, the Armor Wars, the all, all of that, which they're literally making a movie about at this point, is all about that. Uh, weirdly, Iron Man has never really faced the Cobalt Man. There's a few people that pose. Uh, Tony Stark posed as Cobalt Man once in Avengers Thunderbolts, and Riri Williams posed as him once and in Christopher Cantwell's recent Iron Man series. But this is a guy that the Iron Man's never really faced off against, which is an interesting thing. So when we go to X-Men 31, uh, Jean Grey is off at school with Metro at Metro College with her, her beau, Ted. Ted's brother, Ralph, comes to visit. And all Jean knows about Ralph is that Ted feels like he's in constant competition with his brother. Ralph is a good-looking, kind of all-American guy, Ralph Roberts, which is such a superhero or supervillain name based on the double R. Uh, Ralph remembers how he used to be like a star football player at Metro just a few years ago. Uh, Ted challenges him to a pole vaulting competition and Ralph tries to pole vault and his pole breaks and he crashes into the goalpost and hits his head. And Ted and Ted and Gene are like, you need to go see a doctor. And he's like, what? Let it be known that Ralph Roberts, boy industrialist, got conked on the noggin because he was too heavy for pole vaulting. Not a chance, lady. And uh, they go to the Never Say Diner. And Gene brings up how Ralph used to work for Tony Stark and was experimenting with Cobalt. And Ralph reveals that a few months ago, he chose to open his own company, which he calls Robert's Research Lab. And uh, just then, uh, Gene's friends, Scott Summers, Cyclops, and Warren Worthington Angel arrive. Uh, Ralph invites Ted and Gene and Scott and Warren to come see his lab. He has a new top secret invention he wants to show them. And when they get there, he shows them his new Cobalt armor. And Ted goes, it looks like a silver blue version of Iron Man's armor. And Ralph goes, you're almost right. The suit is made of one of our new cobalt alloys. I've tested it once, but help me into it and I'll show you what it can do. 
and things get crazy from here. So before we continue, Phil, tell me your thoughts on the introduction of Ralph Roberts. I mean, it just seems like the kind of normal date. I mean, you know, you and I are older guys with families and kids, but like when we were young, this is the kind of thing we used to do all the time. We would just meet our, you know, significant other's brother and then go to his lab and then he would show us a secret uh, cobalt experimental weapon that he had developed and after after, him... after a late afternoon of pole vaulting right after after the pole vaulting you know as you do as a as a young person again we're we're a little bit older we're past that phase in our in our lives now and then um cobalt man one interesting thing about cobalt man is that he uh the suit of armor also appears to change the way that uh, Ralph talks as well. So he kind of is a little bit of a normal guy. He uses kind of a 60s Roy Thomas Stanley patois when he's in his human form. But then uh, when he uh, becomes Cobalt Man, he becomes a little bit more uh, stentorian. A little, little supervillain-y. He becomes a little bit more supervillain. He, he begins to talk in monologues in a way that Marvel villains do. Um, he... Uh, Ted confronts him after he returns after a, a test flight uh, as Cobalt Man. And then uh, he slaps Ted in the face with his heavy Cobalt gauntlet and says, keep away from me, you young fool. No one may touch the Cobalt Man. And again, one well-known scientific effect of Cobalt radiation is that it begins to cause you to refer to yourself in the third person. And uh, again, speak in this kind of stentorian voice. And uh, then he's off to the races. He uh, well, Ted is Ted is worried that the bump on the head from the pole vaulting accident has actually caused Ted or caused Ralph to have some like what's the cobalt going to do to you now that you've bumped your head? And Ralph admits to him before the test play. He says the main reason I quit Stark Industries, Ted, is because uh, Stark and I refused to, or excuse me, Stark refused to divulge the secret of his Iron Man armor. Uh, he's he he's sat around thinking I could do that with cobalt. That's superior. It'll be fun. Uh, and then he wanted to turn the blueprints over to the government because he feels like the the suit is too dangerous in mortal hands. But he puts this suit on and it releases this like unhinged version of himself, much like Iron Man's atomic radiation did to Angel that one time in that story we talked about, where like evil Angel came out because he got blasted with <laughs> atomic radiation. There's something about this, and he does reference cobalt sixty specifically in this. Uh, he, he's been wearing the suit for a couple of hours. Uh, he admits that if he keeps it on too long, he's going to turn into a walking cobalt bomb because it's going to increase to a point where he's radioactive. But at a certain point, he doesn't care. He gets a headache and he goes mad. And that's when he slaps Ted across the face. That's right. Uh, and he also has proven his own point, uh, because here's a man who has an Iron Man-like capability powered by radioactive cobalt. And is it too much for him? Yes, it is too much for him because it turns him evil. So, you know, what we, sh what we should have done is listen to this guy's warning before he had access to this, uh, you know, mechanical uh, battle suit. And then uh, we wouldn't have had all these problems over these years. So the X-Men arrive and they fight him. And then he's ranting about how he has more and more power. And basically he doesn't care if he explodes and kills everything. And he's already punched his brother. But they managed to defeat him by freezing his chest plate and then dropping in the in the water. And once they get his helmet off, Ralph is back in control. He's like, oh, holy shit, that was that was intense. <laughs> like, I almost destroyed the city. Uh, so he's not your typical supervillain. He doesn't have domination plans, but instead he's driven mad by something. So there's like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde or like an evil version of him that's waiting within that's released by the cobalt. Uh, it's 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 kind of interesting. It's it's quite a beginning. I actually really enjoy this issue. The uh, the first appearance of Cobalt Man's a lot of fun for me. I like it too. And I like an issue like this, which is completely self-contained, a nice one-shot, even if it includes another character's origin story, um, because it forces the writer and the artist to compress everything down. And it doesn't give them the out of stretching out an individual sequence or giving uh, a character that big of a subplot, which can take up so many pages that by the time you're done, it forces you into a cliffhanger. Those comics are fun too. Um, but during this era, given all the dynamics that were involved and given what I presume was Marvel's incentive basically to sell single issues as much as possible, given that they were selling to kids and that there was less dedicated comic book distribution in that era, if this was going on a spinner rack in a drugstore or a grocery store somewhere, and you thought a kid might only buy this, you had to compress it all into whatever it is, 20 pages, 22 pages, 
which also makes these stories incredibly enjoyable to read in our day and age. So if you want to hear us delve in deeper, I, this is Ben Robb's first appearance on my podcast is when we uh, do X-Men 31, The Cobalt Man. When Steve Orlando first comes on my show, it's X-Men 34, which is uh, just a couple of issues later. I'm going to review this one quickly because Cobalt Man's, or Ralph is a little bit supplementary to this one. But in Subterranea, there are more than one villain who are trying to conquer the land that exists under the earth. One of them is Mole Man. One of them is uh, Tyrannus who is literally like a, a thousand year old guy from like Roman uh, Roman stories. We'll talk more about him another time. But they're having a war and they both want to build giant 20 foot robots to fight each other. One is built out of cobalt and one is built out of diamond, which is basically what happens. So uh, Gene in, in X-Men 34, Gene gets a call from Ralph's research lab uh, to inform her that Ralph has been captured, they need help. Uh, so apparently Ted knows that Gene is Marvel Girl, which is kind of supplementary. Anyway, it seems like Ralph has been working on building some stronger cobalt alloys. He's been giving speeches on uh, television about his work with Ted at his side. He's just finished building like a new super cobalt alloy, one that is impervious to lasers and one that might aid in traveling to the center of the earth itself. And then a giant drill bursts through the floor, piloted by Tyrannus and his Tyrannoids. Uh, they capture Ralph, take him back to the center of the Earth. Uh, Ted uh, shows the X-Men the powerful Earth borer that Ralph had built out of his cobalt alloy. And they use this giant fucking drill ship that he built to get into the middle of the Earth. Uh, Tyrannus is threatening to kill Ralph unless he builds him a 30-foot-tall, 10-ton Roman soldier robot built out of your new cobalt alloy. And Ralph uh, does it, he he does this, like, please don't make me do this kind of thing a few times, but he ends up doing it because Tyrannus is threatening to do other things unless he does, I'll conquer the whole world. Uh, I'll build a whole cobalt army. And then he sends this giant robot thing to fight the Mole Man's giant diamond robot. And it's very unsatisfactory. It's like one panel after all of this buildup because they start to malfunction. Uh, and we learn that Ralph has sabotaged the robot so that he can help defeat Tyrannus. So he gets kind of a hero bend and he punches Tyrannus in the jaw and the Tyrannoids grab him, but the X-Men arrive and he's saved and returned to the surface. So there's kind of a there's kind of a quick recap of uh, X-Men 34. Phil, what are your thoughts on that? And then we'll go over to Incredible Hulk, which is a much better Cobalt Man story. You get Cobalt Man without the Cobalt Man. I do think it's interesting that they made the choice to bring him back, but not in his supervillain guise. And it does make him much more interesting as a character to secretly sabotage his collaboration with the uh, underworld villains that the X-Men are fighting in this episode or in this uh, issue i should say um i also found this issue a little bit unsatisfying because of how be the the ridiculousness scale with these comic books is entirely subjective and for as much as i enjoyed the last one with cobalt man this one felt so much like a saturday morning cartoon in terms of its over-the-top ridiculousness that it kind of took me out of it in sections the part with the giant robots battling each other in these tunnels uh at the center of the earth um, I don't know, even for the X-Men, it just seemed a little bit too much. Um, but I'm glad that we get to see Cobalt Man again over in The Incredible Hulk uh, a couple years after this issue went out. X-Men 31, I would say, is really fun and entertaining. X-Men 34, I can see what they were trying for, but it's just kind of objectively bad. And I'm okay saying that. There's a, there's a lot of the 60 books that are just not super satisfactory. And this one's campy and fun. And Ted Roberts is kind of just written off. He's been like Gene Gray's little friend for a while. And then he kind of just disappears after this because they do all these crazy things uh, after this. Uh, the Factor 3 and then the X-Men getting disbanded by the FBI. And they're all over the place. But Cobalt Man doesn't really show back up in an X-Men book after this. Roy, one thing one thing oh, that's yeah. great about the next issue, as I've learned, which I guess is issue number 35, is that on your theme about Marvel creators playing with all the toys in the toolkit, I was very pleased to see that, and I know this isn't the focus of this episode, um, Spider-Man has a guest appearance as opposed to some other character as part of the Factor 3 storyline. Yes, and, and this uh, is the episode we have with Ariana Mar, and it's so fun. We have a, That's a great issue, actually. And I, I love how he just kind of randomly, during the same time over in The Amazing Spider-Man, Stan and uh, Steve Ditko and that team have this great arc about Peter moving out of his house with Aunt May. He has his own apartment with um, Harry Osborn. He gets a motorcycle. He gets J. Jonah Jameson to uh, co-sign on his loan to buy his little motorbike. And now here's that Peter Parker who 
is evolving and growing as this arguably stands Stan in Marvel's greatest single character. He shows up in the X-Men because he decided to take a like day in the country on his motorbike out in uh, Westchester County. And guess what super team he crossed paths with in that issue? Um, I'll leave it there so your listeners can go hold oh, it up specifically. The reason they fight him, Banshee is over in Europe looking for Factor 3 and he sees a spider robot and he sends a communique to the X-Men that's like, I got attacked by a spider. And then they see Spider-Man and they're like, oh, fuck you, Spider-Man. You're the one that attacked Banshee, which is so strange. I assume you must be the spider he referred to. <laughs> it's fun. It's a really fun issue, though. So Roy Thomas picks up Cobalt Man and a few other characters like uh, like the Mimic. Uh, he, like, he takes some of his X-Men stuff. The Locust, they appear during his lengthy Incredible Hulk run. He also picks up some of his X-Men stuff in the Avengers. We're going to be reviewing some of these stories on my show, but we're not going to review the Cobalt Man story in Incredible Hulk, at least uh, in single issue reviews on my show. We will cover it here very briefly. So Incredible Hulk 173, 174. Uh, this is Roy Thomas with Herb Trimpey, who at the time was married to Linda Fight, who we've interviewed. We love Linda. Uh, Herb is also one of the co-creators of Wolverine. Uh, Ralph is back and he's looking a little more distinguished with some gray in the temples. Uh, I've got that going on over here, so I'm uh, I'm all for a little gray in the temples. Uh, tell us about the Incredible Hulk story, Phil, if you will. What happens here? So the issue opens as many, I assume, Hulk issues open with uh, Hulky battling the police. He happens to be in San Diego. Um, I spend a not insignificant amount of time in San Diego, and I can tell you that there are not kind of a Greenwich Village uh, like green tree skyscraper promenade with New York style street signs, which the Hulk is holding on the splash page. But we'll we'll leave that aside. Um, poor Hulk, he tires himself out, as he often does, and he happens to climb aboard a vessel that just happens to be docked in San Diego Harbor. This vessel, um, in events that have taken place before the issue began, is being used by the uh, brothers, Ted and Ralph, for a science project. Um, and incidentally, the name of the ship is the Pequod 2. <laughs> <laughs> the Pequod, as your listeners will remember, is the ship from Moby Dick. And uh, now it has a, a new... The, I think we can all agree that the... A most appropriate modern iteration of that Moby Dick intellectual property is in this issue of The Incredible Hulk about Cobalt Man. Uh, the Pequod 2 sets sail from San Diego, and uh, Bruce Banner, as himself, is a stowaway aboard this ship. Because, of course, you know, when he kind of like comes down from his Hulk episodes, he kind of like conks out for a little while. And uh, he just randomly finds himself enmeshed in this Cobalt Man storyline. And um, then the the issue proceeds how much more do you want me to talk about it yeah well let me so we're gonna get this in the backstory but let me cover it here up front we learned that uh, robert Re robert's research labs has continued and this it takes a while to get to this part of the story but ralph has been exposed to a fatal dose of radiation and clearly it's driven him mad again and the doctors have given him a year to live and he wants to demonstrate the dangers of nuclear energy to the world. So he's planning on destroying a major city in a nuclear explosion. So clearly it has unhinged him again. This guy, this guy should never be allowed around Cobalt again after that first adventure. Uh, but uh, Ted has learned about this, uh, this plan uh, and he's arranged for them to be put aboard a radiation shielded ship. Uh, Ralph wants to uh, witness the explosion and he's brought his Cobalt Man uh, armor just in case because, you know, you need that for the story. And this is the ship that Bruce Banner ends up on, which is ridiculous. When Ted tries to stop Ralph, Ralph punches him. He knocks him unconscious. I've got to do this thing for the greater good. Uh, but Ted snuck aboard anyway. And now he and Bruce Banner are stowaways on this ship where Ralph is planning to set this Cobalt explosion off to teach people how dangerous. Let me murder millions so that I can teach you how dangerous this is. It's almost like a fuck you. I'm dying. I'm, I'm a white man dying and I want to have the world. And I'm going to take you people something. with me. You're going to pay the price. <laughs> uh, he, uh, so, okay. He plans to test out the Cobalt Man armor and write it into an exploding H-bomb that the bomb goes off, which literally happens. And Ralph is standing there unprotected and Banner tackles Ted to try to shield him from the blast. And then Ralph starts to go blue and he grows in size and strength. And then he puts on the Cobalt Man armor with, he's got like a little chest emblem and like a little visor now. It's kind of a, a like a 70s design, a redesign of the suit. 
and he starts attacking the others. And Cobalt Man and the Hulk are now fighting, and the ship sinks, and uh, Ted's like getting everyone to safety as much as he can, uh, the crew that's on there. Uh, what are your thoughts on this story so far? It, 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 uh, uh, Ralph's motivations here are very much in question. <laughs> they they are, but you know, one interesting thing is that a lot of this is very uh, similar to Cobalt Man's initial appearance in that nuclear concerns had not gone away by the mid-70s when this issue was published. And in fact, the backdrop here for the true aficionados in the audience is that there was a time when France uh, withdrew from NATO and did not take part in the kind of European security framework that it is part of today and was part of before then. And so why is there a hydrogen bomb being tested in the Pacific? Well, because France was doing its own thing. And in the fictional world, but not too fictional, of Marvel Comics, um, they decided to uh, just show the world that they were going to sustain their identity as a nuclear power. There's a little exchange at the beginning of this where Thunderbolt Ross, who is uh, Hulk's Bait Noir in the Hulk comic books, urges his French counterpart not to do this. And uh, the guy says, hey, well, monsieur, there's nothing we can do. You know, we are not part of your orthodoxy anymore. And uh, that sets all the events of the comic book in motion. I like the 70s version of Cobalt Man with his kind of like, um, he's got like a football linebacker kind of visor guard on his helmet now. And he has an atom symbol on his armor. Um, he, his branding is much better now. And he's obviously very clearly his own thing. So this is not a Cobalt Man that is an artist taking Iron Man and being like, okay, I'm going to draw this and then make it blue. Um, Marvel and the pencilers here have decided to make him his own thing. And of course, the thing about the Hulk is we all love the Hulk, but what are you going to do with the Hulk as a character? And there's some things you can do, but what you ultimately have to have is someone who thinks he's as strong and as big as the Hulk, fight the Hulk, and then have the Hulk ultimately defeat that other character. And so, although we've had an interesting setup and kind of an interesting backstory with Cobalt Man, this issue and this arc uh, reverts to type. And, uh, Hulk, uh, and has the, to, Hulk, he has to fight Cobalt Man as he tries to go about his dastardly scheme. The, and there is, again, an actual explosion. Cobalt Man stopped. The, the narration on this, the way the story is told is a little wonky. It took me a couple times to like kind of figure it out and decipher. Ted is the stowaway on the boat initially. You're like, wait, what's going on? Uh, 174, Cobalt Man uh, is uh, pissed because his his thing didn't work so he flies to sydney australia and i'm always fascinated when they make big decisions like this he goes to fucking australia and he's like fine i'll just destroy everything i'll detonate here uh because he's recognizing he still wants to teach humanity a lesson while he's there he sends out a public broadcast he says hear me people of the world too long has madness ruled too long have we lived under the threat of atomic destruction today mankind will be shown the outcome of this insanity and may we learn from this what he has refused to learn from history, that we are beasts and beasts cannot control fire. Beasts may only be burned, which is quite a dramatic speech and I want to talk about it. But then the Hulk attacks and Cobalt Man flies him into space to defeat him, but he ends up exploding. So he inadvertently saved Sydney without destroying it because he got distracted by the Hulk, basically. And then he's believed dead, except we'll learn he didn't die. Uh, I'd I, as, I assume on... that he was killed and that that's the end of the line for Cobalt Man. <laughs> uh, I, let me hear your thoughts on this speech, this idea of him preaching that beasts cannot control uh, fire. Uh, Roy Thomas kind of preaching to the masses here almost uh, in the in the late 60s, or excuse me, the early 70s. It's an interesting it's, take. Yeah, I think it would have spoken to the audience just as the earlier Cobalt Man appearances did with the compounding factor that by the 70s, not only were... English-speaking audiences, Marvel audiences worried about nuclear terror. They were worried about the environment as well. And so the idea of warning humanity about its own folly and urging it to recall its weakness and the limits of its abilities, I think, uh, was very much in the, mu the mood music of the time. And to give Marvel its due here, this is something that Cobalt Man has been saying since its very first appearance. You know, in that panel... In the X-Men from 10 years before this comic book came out, he says something very similar, not specifically about nuclear weapons, but about Tony Stark and Iron Man. But the theme is very similar. He's attempting to use uh, the technology at his disposal, his mastery of the infamous isotope of Cobalt-60 to warn humanity out of its own crapulence. 
And uh, unfortunately, he doesn't succeed. Well, and I, I've gotten to know Roy Thomas just enough to know he would pull a lot of his ideas from literary references, from things he saw on the news or while traveling. Uh, we've had episodes about like Kukulkan or the Locust, and these are these are the same types of things. He'd get these literary ideas. This is him addressing a very real world concern in a supervillain comic book plot. Uh, but this speech by Cobalt Man about the dangers is very much for the audience to hear. Uh, but Bruce Banner or the Hulk can always survive a nuclear explosion. That's his that's his thing. And not only that, but he's immortal, which is something we've learned more recently. Uh, God, if you haven't read Immortal Hulk by Alan Ewing, God, it's good. The front to back, an incredible horror book about the Hulk. It's wonderful. Uh, but uh, Cobalt Man comes back in Defenders 42-43. This is 1976, Jerry Conway and Keith Giffen. And we learned that he didn't die. He was put into suspended animation by Egghead. Egghead is one of my favorite camp Marvel villains that I will never get to talk about on the show very much, simply because he has nothing to do with the X-Men. He's a mad scientist in a white coat with a pointy egg head. And he fucking hates Henry Pym so much. And he just keeps coming back again and again. He's a mean motherfucker who's like, he recruits people and tortures them and like makes them do all these awful things and tries to kill people. He's a horrible, horrible character, but I love him because he's just a ridiculous camp villain. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Egghead before we continue? Egghead, Egghead was another new character, uh, another new character for me, as were the Defenders in this series of comic books. This is not one that I was familiar with. Oh, um, I love it. The, the Defenders is 152 issues. I love the whole thing. It's a wonderful uh, I had never read the Defenders before, and I can understand why they've had a little bit more difficulty breaking through because um, this is not the premier league of the Marvel characters. Uh, Doctor Strange, I don't care for Doctor Strange. Um, I'm amazed that the Hulk was considered um, at the level to include with this kind of pack of strays grouping that Marvel did with these characters. Because who else do you have? Valkyrie? she's not she's not really a thing um luke cage power man he's fine but he doesn't really make sense to be in this group rhino uh the we defenders know the defenders is, villain what is he doing here like this this whole thing just seems wrong to me the defenders, about is this the, defenders run is is just unsound the defenders is the non-team and the idea is they never wanted to form a team but they keep finding ways to keep bringing these disparate heroes together and sometimes it's silver surfer and namor Sometimes it's uh, Nighthawk and Hellcat. Like you get these, you get some mainstays, but it's just, it's a wild ride the whole way through. I hear you say that they're not a team and they don't have team trappings. And yet here they are staying together for long enough to deal with Egghead and Cobalt Man, as we'll discuss for at least two issues. And, and they, at one point, at one point they go back to Dr. Strange's uh, apartment, I guess in Greenwich Village, which, you know, may not be there. It's not the same as Tr uh, Professor Xavier's mansion, but like, it's basically serving the same purpose here or mm -hmm. the way Four Freedom Plaza does or the Avengers various headquarters around the world. So like I, I, I'm hearing you say that they're not a team, but I'm I'm seeing a super team here. I'm that's just not seeing whole, a very good one, frankly. That's the whole point of the book is it's just this ridiculous concept and they keep coming across threat after threat. Some of them are so crazy. Egghead has formed a team called the Emissaries of Evil. Now, I did talk about this team briefly when I did my episode, my Patreon episode with Steve Fox about the character Solar, who is here. Uh, he's evil because he has two R's at the end of his name. Uh, he has recruited Solar and Rhino and he's torturing them and he's trying to get this thing called the, the Mystic Star of Kapistan and we're just not going to spend time on it today. But Egghead has also been keeping Cobalt Man in suspended animation. And so they fight the Defenders and Cobalt Man is unleashed because he thinks uh, Egghead thinks this is the guy that can defeat the Hulk. And Egghead activates a nuclear breakdown within Cobalt Man, and he plans to destroy the Defenders with it. Like, fuck this guy. He's awful. <laughs> like, I've kept this asset who's a human life, and now I'm going to blow him up to, to try to kill the heroes. And uh, they stop the explosion by submerging Ralph in water. And Clea is there. I fucking love Clea. Clea is a great character. This is Doctor Strange's, like, mystic wife from the Dark Dimension. Uh, and Red Guardian is there. This is like the female Red Guardian who's Tanya Belinsky. And they form a mental bond with Ralph and give him control of his own body by helping him relive some of his own memories. But then Egghead shows up and Ralph grabs him 
and triggers a miniature nuclear explosion in order to kill Egghead and save the heroes. So he's back in control of himself, basically. But Egghead survived because he teleported away at the last second. And you can next see him at Avengers number 217. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this story overall? If, if only he hadn't been able to teleport away, it would have taken care of this problem because he would have been atomized in that cobalt explosion. <laughs> Uh, but he was too clever for the defenders. Um, this was not my favorite of the Marvel books, although I enjoyed it for what it's worth. And I will say on the subject of Cobalt Man's evolution, um, he is a mature uh, villain or tragic character by this point because all of his themes about um, being in the wrong place at the wrong time and self-sacrifice and... Uh, ultimately attempting to do what he believes is the right thing uh come together again and his costume or his his iron man like cobalt man suit is finally mature here marvel seems to have decided to just leave it well enough alone uh alone rather and he has a he has a great page in this issue i can't get i can't get my app to show which one it is but um it shows him appearing and it shows these two little inset panels of the hulk being upset about it because the last time we Marvel readers saw Cobalt Man was in that issue we talked about where he fights the Hulk over Australia. And so this ties them back together again. And he still has his football linebacker uh, chin guard and his atom symbol on his chest. And it's just a great panel. So the, the well, art it, at least the art at least is uh, very effective in this appearance by Cobalt Man. And this takes us back to where we started our conversation. You take the toy out of the toolbox, you see where they were last, and then you find a way to build on their story. And Cobalt Man is seemingly dead here, and he's gone for 30 years. Egghead, by the way, in his next appearance, forms his own version of the Masters of Evil and attacks the Avengers, which is quite an escalated plot for this guy. He's a, We'll talk about him another time. Uh, uh, he might get some attention on my show if we ever do the Alpha Flight special. Uh, we'll, for those that are unfamiliar, Egghead is the villain in the Alpha Flight special, which is like a pre-Wolverine Alpha Flight story. We may do that eventually on my show. So maybe we'll talk more Egghead sometime. Well, talk about talk about bad super teams. The defenders <laughs> in this run in the 70s make Alpha Flight look like the Avengers by comparison. I mean, <laughs> God, what a, can you imagine? What a bunch of dreck. I can't, I can't believe. I, I, I actually would be I will be listening to that episode and your other Alpha Flight episodes with great interest because it is not clear to me as an outsider looking at this ex post facto, whatever prompted Marvel to create Alpha Flight and try to sustain it as an independent property. I also love Alpha Flight. And, it, and again, it ran over, over like a decade and is still relatively popular in the lexicon just because the characters are so rich. But I agree with you. It's a weird concept. And there's a lot of, a lot of things to explore. Uh, let me cover this part really quickly. Cobalt Man shows up and it's a weird story that we're just not going to spend time. And it's called Hulk Nightmarica, number one. It's in 2003. It's by Robin Laws and Brian Ashmore. And we see the Cobalt Man fighting the Hulk. Uh, he wanted to be famous. Uh, and the armor burns Hulk whenever he touches it. But he gets smashed by a car. Like, we don't even know if this is the same character necessarily or if it's set earlier or later in continuity. Then maybe Cobalt Man's most famous experience, uh, appearance is in Civil War number one. This was a giant Marvel summer event. It's Mark Millar and uh, Steve McNiven. And uh, the new warriors have formed a reality show where they're going in and handling supervillain threats on camera. And they fight some supervillains in Stanford, Connecticut. And Nitro blows up and kills hundreds of civilians. And it launches the Civil War, which is the, we need to register superheroes. No, we don't. And Captain America and Iron Man are fighting so we, the, the, the point of this is not the Civil War event itself, but they bring in a bunch of just fucking random supervillains at the beginning of this. And these are the guys that the New Warriors are fighting. And one of them is Cobalt Man. And the others are Coldheart, Speed Freak, and Nitro. And we're not going to talk about these different characters. But uh, do you have thoughts on, uh, on Civil War? Which, I, I, again, your NPR background and the concept of Civil War and superhero registration is fascinating to me already. Um, I am not familiar with those books uh, because of the way that run appeared in my own comic book journey. But I remember the attempt by Marvel to try and elevate comic books in the way that these publishers frequently do by changing something about them or by using their existing properties to try to get public attention. Uh, DC does this too periodically with killing off characters 
or revealing that characters are bi or revealing that characters are gay or that there's one version of a character that's gay. And um, I am interested to know how successful it can become because with so many other things with comic books, they copy each other, they try to top each other, they do these things in such a way that I actually kind of wonder whether they start to cancel each other out and the desire for comic books as comic books to break through actually ever succeeds or what continues to be the things that these companies really care about um, are the movies, the movie properties, which a lot, I think a lot more people engage in. I just honestly don't know. Well, and this became a movie. Uh, Civil War is one of the Captain America films, which is fascinating on its own. So Cobalt Man is part of this random group of villains. They're hiding out in Connecticut. The New Warriors attack and Microbe, who's a character that weaponizes germs, uh, just uh, like rusts Cobalt Man's armor with with bugs or germs and that's kind of all he does here but it's a it's a bizarre place to find this character it's such a weird turn for him uh do you have any comments on cobalt man's appearance here uh no only that uh i kind of missed the cobalt man of yesteryear i kind of liked um it's it, i i preferred the cobalt man that marvel was taking seriously enough to use for these two issue arcs that we've been talking about but not so seriously that he was ever or treated seriously as a supervillain or given given the kind of attention that he deserves. And I kind of lament the fact that they brought him back, but only enough to have these little guest shots and then dispensed with him again because clearly there were there were bigger programs in store for these other characters. So I'm going to cover a bunch of supplementary Cobalt Man stuff really quickly. And then there's basically only one more Cobalt Man story to talk about. I mentioned earlier... Tony Stark poses as Cobalt Man once. Riri Williams does it once. There is an issue of Thunderbolts number 112 where American Eagle talks about fighting a different Cobalt Man, a guy named Bobby Langwolf who's dressed in Cobalt Man armor. In Avengers Academy number 10, Christos Gage, uh, the students of uh, the Avengers Academy are visiting the Stamford Memorial and they're attacked by a group of civilians dressed in Cobalt Man armor. They call themselves the Cobalt Men and they're furious and speedball just kicks their asses we also see a version of cobalt man in incredible hercules 129 130 in the realm of the dead but again this could be any character so he's kind of all over the place even though he's nowhere all at once uh but we do have one more ralph roberts story before we cover uh his his kind of final or most recent appearance uh, do you have any thoughts on all the stuff i just summed up quickly no there's not enough cobalt man there to, <laughs> <laughs> to discuss intelligently the Cobalt Men. <laughs> There's a whole team now. And I do love Christos Gage. He'll give us these deep dives into characters, which are so fun. So Ralph Roberts is a real, revealed to be alive in Deadpool and the Mercs for Money, uh, which is a title where it's kind of brilliant. This is worthy of a much longer explanation, but uh, this is Jerry Duggan's interpretation of the character in his Deadpool title. He kind of created this team of mercenaries around Deadpool. And to me... Each one of these mercenaries represents a different aspect of Deadpool. Uh, so there's Stingray, who's kind of the forgotten hero guy. There's Solo, who's like the pretty effective mercenary with no family. Uh, there's Paladin, and there is Terror Inc. And there's it, it, we'll, uh, the analysis of this is worth it for another time. But the the series, uh, this team was popular enough to sustain a couple of issues in a couple of volumes. And it's called Deadpool and the Mercs for Money. In this particular volume, it's 2017, Colin Bunn and Ivan Coelho give us a story about the Mercs for Money being hired to go after people with radioactive abilities. And this goes on, they're, they're looking for Negasonic Teenage Warhead and Nuke and the Presence and Radioactive Man and all these characters that kind of show up. It's There's a company called Umbral Dynamics who of course are doing some shitty things, which is why they're hiring under the table mercenaries. And one of the guys they go after is Cobalt Man, who's in like a massive tank-like armor. Do you want to describe this armor for us? It's a, quite the upgrade for this guy. Yeah, it's much bigger, uh, if I recall correctly, I don't have the panel in front of me right now, uh, than his football armor. But it's much more like a, like a vehicle, like a tracked vehicle, if I recall correctly, as compared to the, his like football linebacker uniform that he had on earlier in his career. Yeah, he's like tank size with like glowing fists, basically. He's enormous and he's radioactive and he's scary. And the mercenaries attack him in Chicago and Deadpool's like 
cutting his mask with swords and Ralph is like, hey, I'm retired, leave me alone. Like I gave up being a villain, but now they're like putting all these civilians at risk, but they captured him. And ultimately he gets delivered to this company and then freed later. But it's kind of a, we, we learned that Ralph is alive and that he has some sort of vibrant life going on here. There's something happening for this guy. Uh, so it's kind of a random uh, experience. The, uh, the uh, Colin Bunn sat down and said, we need everyone radioactive you can think of for this story. Who, who are the characters we can use? Um, so as we are, uh, as we are kind of summarizing all of Cobalt Man's experiences in a row, what was it like, Phil, for you to delve into this character you didn't know about? What are your thoughts about him, uh, kind of in summation? Uh, I liked learning about Cobalt Man a lot, and I liked how uh, hearing you talk about his stories kind of traces an arc for Marvel as a stream of popular culture that began um, semi-seriously, but also semi-campy, but always which attempted to have this relevant kind of uh, ripped from the headline sensibility about the weapons concerns of the 60s and the possibility of a real cobalt nuclear bomb to a place where it lands where everything's kind of a joke, everything's kind of a punchline, nothing is taken that seriously. And because you have 40, 50 years of continuity and thousands or tens of thousands of characters, you can use them and abuse them as much as you want to. You can do anything you want. And audiences are sophisticated enough to either say, um, I don't even care because I'm interested in this Deadpool storyline and I want to know about his mercenaries. Or for a very small number of us, they would say, I can't believe that Marvel would do Cobalt Man so wrong this way and, and uh, <laughs> treat him at the end of his career without the respect that he's uh, owed. Um, but the great thing is, it's all fun. It's all Marvel. It's all comic books. And so I, for one, will be, again, Marvel, if you're out there and you want a writer to take on a new comic book limited series about Cobalt Man, I'm your guy for that. <laughs> or I will look for the other books that are coming down the pike of the, of the various uh, superheroes or super teams to see whether he appears again. Now, obviously, this character appears in early X-Men before they have become the force they are now, which is what happens when Claremont takes over and after. But I uh, I enjoy doing these episodes because this character is an X-Men character initially, who's gone on to become a Hulk character and then kind of a toy in the toy box for whoever wants to use him. If I was to see a Cobalt Man story nowadays, I would almost want to see Ralph Roberts reckoning with his legacy, uh, really trying to do something good. I could see him in kind of a support role for a team doing tech stuff, where I could see him working for Iron Man and trying to met. I think there's some things to explore with that relationship because this he, he hated Tony Stark in his first appearance, but we've never seen these characters meet. Uh, I would love to see Jean Grey crossing paths with Ted Roberts, even for just a panel and like having them acknowledge their history briefly. Uh, we we posited with with uh, with uh, I think it was Connor Goldsmith once who said uh, that, uh, you know, Jean Grey was fucking Ted Roberts back in the day because Scott, Scott Summers wasn't giving it to her. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to explore there, too. Uh, but I, uh, well, I it was a little we, awkward for uh, Scott and Warren to show up at the diner when the two of them were together. <laughs> I also think uh, I also think there's some potential for this guy becoming a supervillain or, of course, a, a giant nuclear threat once again, which is always fun for the heroes to have to kind of face uh, creative ways to take them down. Uh, but this is not a character anyone is clamoring for. I don't think Cobalt Man is anyone's favorite. I don't know if you've seen I had Rage Gear Studios draw Cobalt Man for my wall. Uh, I'm trying to show you off the camera here without pulling it down, but there's a there's a Cobalt Man print on my wall, and when I showed when I showed that to uh, to a couple of the creators like Tom Brevoort, they were like, "What? <laughs> like, what are you doing?" Uh, but I actually genuinely like this character and the camp of him and what he represents in the kind of American lexicon and how that interfaces with the uh, comics overall. Uh, as we're wrapping up, yeah, so you can make a pitch. Yeah. You, yeah, you yeah. could just make a pitch about him uh, coming back and, and being an environmental, uh, you know, a, a steward of climate change. I think that's what Marvel, uh, the the spirit of Cobalt Man is someone who would use his Cobalt powers to try and uh, turn off every internal combustion engine in the world or stop the Chinese from burning coal or something like that. And the way, the way Cobalt Man makes sense in our era is for him to give a speech like the one he gives in Sydney and say, you fools, how dare you continue to belch all that carbon into the atmosphere? Don't you see that you're cooking yourselves alive? <laughs> I, Cobalt Man, will teach you the true error of your ways. And uh, he would have some Cobalt suit that he could then use to blah, 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 blah. 
and uh, he would have to fight a superhero. I don't See, know whether I'm... he would rate a good uh, super team or whether you would need to get like whatever whatever Marvel title is selling the worst is the place that you would have to put him. I think he's most likely to show up just as a one-off villain for someone to punch, right? Which is the the Hulk Nightmarica appearance. This guy, I I I think it would be hilarious to have him giving a lecture about the dangers of climate change, and then someone in the audience, like a reporter, going, "Didn't you try to blow up Sydney, Australia once?" <laughs> I mean, like, uh, next question. <laughs> that was on Earth thirty-one twenty-five. <laughs> Uh, Phil, I think you are delightful. It is wonderful to hang out and just uh, shoot shoot the shit about this nonsense character, and uh, but but kind of make it serious and literary at the same time. Uh, thank you for doing the homework to to prep and uh, for for hanging out with me today. As we're wrapping up, my pleasure. Thank people... you so much. Oh, it's it's an honor. I'd, I'd have you back on the show again and again, Matt. I think you're great and smart, and you make me think, and I love it. Uh, if people were to find you online, where could they do so? And recognizing we're going to put this out toward the end of March, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I have no current plugs, but if people wanted to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Phil Ewing, at P-H-I-L-E-W-I-N-G. If Twitter still exists by the time you hear this, that's it will. the caveat that we always have to give. Twitter's going to be there when I'm a grandfather. I, it, it'll be like MySpace. It'll be the the, the abandoned amusement park of the internet. Just uh, the, the. I hope that's so, because uh, then I'll have lots of original X-Men art to RT from the various artists <laughs> that follow uh, finally, you can find me on social media. My own social media is private because I got kiddos, but Graham Malkin Lane is Graham Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Graham Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We have crazy, amazing things happening on the show. Uh, we are booked well into the summer at this point, and I'm so excited about the upcoming content and guests. The next Patreon episode after this is going to be the character uh, Crimson Commando uh, with the incredible writer, uh, my friend Steve Orlando. And I'm really excited. Uh, Jay and Miles called this guy one of the murder grandpas. <laughs> He's been a really fun character to delve into. Uh, the next episode coming out on the main show after this is going to be the trial of my favorite supervillain, uh, Carl Lycos or Sauron. And uh, I'm recording that this weekend and it's going to be wildly fun. So uh, so stay tuned and uh, we will see you guys all back here next time on Grey Milk and Lane's Patreon. Thanks, Phil. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye.